0: Good morning, church. Welcome to Calvary Monument Bible Church, Church Online. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. Before we dive into our monthly memory verse, I just wanted to remind you that we'll have a gathering this evening at 6 p.m. to celebrate the ministry and the retirement of Pastor Tom Hubbard, who is retiring at the end of June. We will uh, have that outside unless the weather causes us to have it inside. At that point, masks will be optional, and we will be trying to maintain social distancing in the sanctuary. Uh, But we would invite you all to come and enjoy a time of fellowship and celebration This evening, 6 p.m. of Pastor Tom's ministry and his service to Calvary Monument Bible Church. Also, if you have yet to sign up for virtual Bible school, you want to make sure you go ahead and do that as soon as possible so we can get you kits and we can get you assigned times to come and pick up the kits for the kids that you'll have to participate in our vacation Bible school option for this summer. We're going to say our monthly memory verse together now. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15:58. Would you say it together with me? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15:58. It was The night of December 28th, it was a crazy evening, 2019. We were in Miami, Florida. It was Sheila's birthday. And I remember that we had called. It was getting late. We had gotten down there later than expected. Our hotel was a little bit further away from the airport than what was expected. And we had called and we had ordered dinner in. And I was waiting out in the lobby to pick up dinner that evening. I was sitting in one of the chairs in the lobby of the hotel. And I remember feeling this overwhelming sense of weight on my shoulders. Our lives were about to change forever. See, the next morning, we would wake up at around 2.30 a.m., we would leave our hotel around 3 am, and we would go to Miami Airport and we would fly out of Miami Airport, into Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and make the trip from Port-au-Prince through Port-au-Prince, near Pétionville into the crash to pick up Yuri and Levinsky, and to come back to America that very same day flying into Miami then Atlanta, then back to, I believe it was Baltimore. Our lives were forever changed. And you know, for us in that situation, it was a tide. It was a change that we could see coming. It was often the distance. We knew it was coming. We had a little bit of time to prepare for it, but we can't fully prepare for those kinds of things until we're living in them. But for some of us, friends, it's a phone call that we get in the middle of the night when we've had no time to prepare. And our lives are changed like that forever. For some, it's a phone call on an early afternoon from a doctor with a difficult diagnosis that we're not prepared to receive. You see, friends, change comes quick, it comes sudden, and sometimes we're ready, sometimes we're prepared, but so often we are not. And so often in an instant, everything that was comfortable to us, everything that we knew, everything that was normal, all of a sudden is thrown off. Things are completely off kilter. We're experiencing this in our culture right now as we walk through the changes that are coming, that continue to come, and that will continue to come on the other side of COVID-19. We're going to see a season of change, a season of transformation. And what do you do when everything in your life is about to change and you know it? Where do you turn? We've spent a great deal of time over the past number of weeks unpacking Jesus' farewell discourse and today in our time together we are going to come to the conclusion of Jesus' farewell prayer. Jesus' example in times like this, the very times that we're living in right now in our culture and our world today, Jesus' example was an example of prayer one of reliance and dependence on the Father, an attitude of humility, sacrificial love, considering the needs and the continued ministry of His disciples. His work complete, His mission accomplished. Jesus could go to the cross with the peace of knowing those whom He was leaving behind would be empowered of God to complete the work they had been given to do. So what we find in this particular portion of Jesus' prayer is like His final will and testament for the church. Essentially, that is what we are going to be looking at today in John chapter 17 as we conclude the final six verses of Jesus' prayer. We are going to see what Jesus' desire for His church is. What does he intend for his bride to look like? He defines in these final six verses and describes the potential for her immaculate beauty. When the day comes and the church finally presents herself to Jesus, what will she look like? What does he desire for her to look like? And knowing what Jesus desires for his church, his bride, uh, we can begin here on earth to adorn ourselves with the things that he desires for us to have and for us to be. So, if you have your Bibles today, we want to turn to John chapter 17. We're in the final six verses of Jesus' farewell prayer, his high priestly prayer, verses 20 to 26 is what we'll be looking at today. This is Jesus's final living will and testament for his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. What a relevant and powerful time to be in this passage of scripture. Lord, our lives are changing before our very eyes and we do not know what the future holds. But we know, Lord, that you hold our future, that you hold us, that you are keeping us. And so it is our prayer, Lord, as we've studied this the last number of weeks in this incredible season of change and transition, it is our prayer that we would glean and learn from your example that we would be a people who would fix our eyes on the Father, that our eyes would be on you that you would be our example, that you would be our guide. Lord, there's so much in this world today that could divide us. Racial tension, an election year, whether or not we wear a mask on our face. Oh, Father, We need our eyes fixed on you. You're going to have to accomplish a victory in our hearts and in our minds in this season, Lord. We are too weak to be united on our own. Help us keep our eyes on you. Help us find our strength in you. Help us find our hope and our confidence in you. Give us courage to change. Give us faith to make difficult decisions in these days. Motivate us to love one another and to love you in the same manner that you have loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. This is the final six verses of Jesus' prayer. There are two primary themes that fill the final six verses of Jesus' high priestly prayer. And the first, church, is that we would be one. And there is something motivating about the reality that at the end of Jesus' life, when the world is caving in on him, when any one of us in the same position would be worried about self-preservation and self-protection, that he gives it up and goes to the Father. And friends, have you considered that this particular prayer is for you and for me? This is Jesus praying for his church praying for those who would come on the tails of the ministry of the disciples. Jesus is nearing the moment of the cross and in the midst of what is going to be incredible personal turmoil when He's faced with this unstoppable tide of torture and despair and loneliness, He goes before the Father and He prays for you. and He prays for me. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you are believing at home today, then this portion of Jesus' prayer was for you. We are a people, church, who are the product of the continued ministry of the disciples. After Jesus ascended to the Father, He is praying here for us. And this portion of Jesus' prayer, as we read it, we can see that there's instruction, there's exhortation, there's encouragement. There's even a foreshadowing of Jesus' future ministry of intercession, one that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8.34. In many ways, Jesus is already interceding for us in this particular portion of His prayer. It says this in Romans 8, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Dane Ortland in his fabulous book titled Gentle and Lowly describes the continual intercessory ministry of Jesus on our behalf as, quote, a daily application of his work of atonement, end quote. And what I see here in this passage is such an incredible example of Jesus's love for his people, all that he is facing. And he's not concerned with himself, his legacy on earth. Rather, he's concerned about the people who were given to him by the father and What is most important here, especially in these first three verses, in verses 20 to 23, what we are most clearly seeing is what Jesus is actually desiring to see in his church. In verses 21 to 23, it's resoundingly clear and strikingly compelling. It's a concept that's so simple to say, but, church, it is one of the most difficult things for us to apply one of the most difficult truths for the church to apply and it's over and over and over again look at the beginning of verse 21 that they may all be one then again in the middle of verse 22 take a look that they may be one even as we are one and again in verse 23 i and them you and me that they may become perfectly one. Now, church, the reality here is that thankfully this is already true. In Christ, we are one. This has been accomplished. God has granted Jesus's request. First Corinthians chapter 12. We are many parts, but one body. Galatians chapter three, verse 28. For all of you are one in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Take a look at this. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Now friends, here's the reality. We are one but we don't always live like we believe it. We fail to apply the truth of our unity in Christ. I mean, look at our culture in the world. Everything's divided. It's everywhere we look. And it's infiltrated the church. We wage wars, and we fight, and we bicker, and we divide, and we eat our own, and we chase those who are hurting and broken away, and we criticize, and we judge. Somebody chooses to wear a mask, somebody doesn't. Somebody chooses to continue to worship from home because of realities in their life that will not allow them to be in the building, perhaps for the foreseeable future, and others come. There's opportunity and potential for division all around us. There's a desire in man's heart to rule and to control and to manipulate. And we ostracize and we polarize and people get angry and they leave. We see it everywhere. It's in the church, it's in the local church, it's in the church abroad. And ironically, in our text, Jesus mentions one reason that the unbelieving church remains unbelieving is because that the church is poor at living in the truth of our unity in Christ. Friends, we are not good at this. Jesus prays that we may all be one. And in the final verse of 21, he gives a reason for this prayer. Look at the final piece of verse 21 with me. So that they may be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Friends, division in the local church. Let's not sugarcoat this at all. Division in the local church is a tool of Satan. One that he uses to keep the unbelieving world in darkness. And now here we are, friends. And, and I can't see a greater opportunity for the local church in the world to turn the tide to change to be an incredible force of unity and love than perhaps what we're facing right now. Yes, we have failed in the past. I have failed. Perhaps some of you have also failed to be a unifier from time to time. Perhaps you have been slow. I know at times I've been slow to express my gratitude, to show love, to embrace change, to promote peace. But here we have an opportunity, one that we can seize together. The world can see the true light of Christ Jesus shining in his church by the way that we climb out of the canyon of COVID 19 together. Church, I am calling us to radical unity, unity that's countercultural unity that will certainly set us apart from the world when we refuse to be divided by all of the things that are going on around us. Friends, if, if that happens, we will look differently than the world, hands down. It won't happen without a commitment to prayer. It won't happen if our hearts aren't tuned towards grace and mercy. It won't happen if the patterns of our lives aren't directed towards compassion, towards gratitude, and towards humility. And here we are, so ironically, in an election year. More division is coming. The signs will be everywhere. Red and blue will adorn our streets. Commercials will come on the TV. There will be ads. You will receive mailings. People's names will be drugged through the mud. Their lives will be exposed and laid out for all the world to make decisions over whether this is a good person or a bad person. And oh, there's even more potential to bring division. Our failure already within our country to acknowledge our own problems with racism has been a cause for divide. The wolves of division are circling about. Where will we fix our eyes? Where will we go, church? Who will stir and motivate our hearts? Who will compel and move us towards love and unity? The challenge for us, church, the challenge as we seek to climb out of this together, is that corporately we must commit to keep our eyes on Jesus. The Good Shepherd. This is going to set us apart. Jesus talked about this last week in John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Unity will set the church apart from the world. We are one in Christ. We need to behave like it. Now is our chance. This is our time, church. This is the opportunity that God has placed before our church's generation. The Holy Spirit is able to use our example of unity to draw people unto the Father for salvation. What a testimony! What a testimony would unity have in this culture and world today that people would look at the church and say, how have they stuck together? My goodness. Look at how strong they are. They're supporting and encouraging one another. There's folks that are worshiping from home. There's folks that are coming to the building and they're ministering to all of them. They're finding ways to love their people wherever they are at, wherever they may be, whatever challenges are before them. They're so committed to unity, they're doing everything they can within their power to love and to care and to disciple their people. Church, to do this, I'll be honest, and this is for me, it's for you, it's for all of us. To do this, we're going to have to let go of our kingdoms. We're going to have to see our idols go, friends. Things are going to need to crumble that have been long-standing placeholders in buildings. Crowns that we have accumulated here on earth, they're going to have to hit the garbage disposal. We're going to have to give much away to gain Christ together how different could his church look in the world if this kind of radical behavior came to define who we are rather than division, rather than bickering and arguing over whether we do this little thing or that little thing let's just care for each other let's just love one another let's just dig in and do life together wherever the Lord has us Jesus has given us the power to do this, to live like this. Look at the beginning of verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Glory that belongs only to God is bestowed upon the church for the sake of unity. This Church, so that in turn, we might display the glory of God in the way that we live and dwell together in this unity. Perfectly one, perfectly one in verse 23 again, so that the world may know, church, our unity isn't for us. This isn't for us to make us look good. It's not about, oh, look at them. It's about who is keeping them together. It's God, friends. It's for His glory. It's for the world. That the world might know that Jesus is God. And that they might experience the love that we've experienced. That comes from God as well. Unity is hard, church. It's it's a difficult thing. We're going to need Jesus' strength to accomplish it within us. We are not going to be able to do this on our own power. And you know, ironically, unity doesn't mean that we always agree. That's a misnomer. It's not true. People who are unified do not always agree. In fact, I would say the irony of unity is that if you believe you have unity and it's free of any disagreement, you probably don't really have unity at all. I like the way John Piper says it. He says, I don't think that agreement, which only survives in a fog, is worth much. Church, true unity requires an atmosphere where all people are able to express a diversity of views and opinions without the fear of being shamed or belittled. This wasn't Jesus' example to shame and belittle people. He sat with them. He listened. He empathized. And friends, we're going to have to do this. We're going to be in places where people express other views and have valid reasons for holding the views that they do. And we're going to have to be patient to sit and to listen and to empathize and to say, Hey, I, I understand how you could feel that way. I understand that's a reality in your life that doesn't allow you to do this or do that. How can we care for you anyway? How can we love you? How can we support you? How can we walk alongside of you? True unity means that we lean into disagreements. We have civil conversations with one another, sometimes while even disagreeing. True unity means that we can leave a room with consensus on how to move forward. There may not be full agreement by every party that's there, but what you have is consensus. Yes, this is the plan of action we're going to take. Everyone's on board. We may not fully agree, but this is where we're headed. Let's roll. True unity requires that we'll lay aside our own demands, our own desires to be right or to be justified, our own impulsion to win, to get our way, so that we can magnify Jesus above individual and above self. It's hard. This is going to be hard. It is hard to apply this truth to our lives, but because Jesus is, is at work in us and through us, church, we can dare to do the hard things. He will accomplish it for us. We will have to. I believe, church, this is our moment. This is our season. We can put a stake in the ground today as the body of Christ and say, from here on out, we're applying the truth of unity to our congregation. This is what Jesus desired for his church and we desire to live it. Keeping our eyes fixed on the Father for the sake of togetherness. Jesus is going to continue his prayer. He's going to draw us towards the second major reality, the second hallmark that defines what he desires to see for his church. As he ends his sentence in verse 23, what he does is he ends by acknowledging that the same love that the father had shown the son is also available to the world. And so we come to find if unity is Jesus' first desire for his bride, the expression of that unity in love is his second desire. The expression of that unity in love is his second desire. And Jesus models this by expressing his own love towards us. It was just a few verses ago in verse 15 where Jesus had prayed for the Father to not take his disciples out of the world, but rather to protect them from the evil one. And now Jesus will acknowledge to the Father that indeed he does desire for his followers to be with him. Take a look at verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. And and now the purpose. Why? Why does He desire for us to be with Him? Continue on in verse 24. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus longs for his believers to be with him so that we can see his glory. And again, that theme of glory that started all the way back in John chapter 1. Remember, we said this was a theme that's carried on throughout John and how John chapter 1 really foreshadows all of what comes in John. And so this theme that continued in John chapter 1 is carried through into John chapter 17. All the way, friends, the glory of God, the glory of Christ all the way to the cross we are united in love for the glory of god and it's a glory that flows from the very love that the father had for his son and it's a glory that we will one day see ourselves what will the bride of christ Think about this church. What will the bride of Christ declare when we finally see him and we get to witness the fullness of his glory and it's on display before us for the very first time? There's a clue in the book of Revelation's a beautiful text. Revelation chapter 19 verses 6 to 8. Listen to What John says here, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. How powerful, right? Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, Bright and pure, and the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Those righteous deeds, friends, are what we do in love. It's the work that God brings us that He's prepared beforehand for us to do in Ephesians chapter two. It talks about this. And all of what He's brought to us is to be accomplished in love. And Jesus uses this phrase here in back in John 17. He says, before the foundation of the world. And when we see Jesus use a phrase like this, or one of his apostles, like Paul, he uses it in Romans and Ephesians, we need to realize that they're talking about eternity past. Jesus is not saying here that he had a beginning. He's simply expressing the reality of his eternality in a way that our minds might be able to better grasp and understand it. Perhaps today we might say something like as far back as you can possibly imagine, but even that phrase doesn't really do it justice because we're so conditioned by time here on earth. And though the world is largely unable to understand this reality, those who know Jesus can dimly see its truth in the world today. We can see the glory of God, the glory of Christ at work in our world today, friends. When when Jesus grows His church in the face of immense turmoil and persecution and people come to know Him and He continues to build, we witness His glory. When believers shine together as lights in a crooked and depraved generation, we witness the glory of Jesus. When brothers and sisters in Christ Love and meet one another's need, we catch a glimpse of His glory. When the gospel goes forth and the Spirit moves and hearts are regenerated and minds are transformed, we witness a dim reflection of the glory of Christ. Here, though we do not fully experience it, yet one day we will fully cherish and know and celebrate the magnificent glory of the word become flesh. And so in Jesus' final verse, we see again clearly the purpose that he fulfilled and the fruit that it produced. Look down at verse 26. The purpose he fulfilled, the fruit it produced. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus fulfilled his purpose of making God known to those whom he was given. He will continue the work of making God known through the ministry of the Spirit and his word today and all of this so that the church might be adorned in a radiance with the fruit of love. The same Love with which the Father loved the Son is alive and at work in the life of the church, in the person and in the work of the Holy Spirit. So, this is a lot, church. And we ask ourselves this question how might our lives look in light of these realities? As Jesus is preparing for the cross in our text today, he is looking ahead at those who would believe the church. He is defining and describing how the ministry of the church should look in light of his ministry. And we complicate this a lot in the church today. We try to build up all these man-made structures and complicate what Jesus has really called us to do is be uniting. Be united and be loving. The greatest motivators of unity are gratitude and humility. Those are the greatest motivators of unity, friends. When we are thankful, when we are humble, we will be a unifying people. And the greatest indicators of if we are loving is the fruit of the Spirit. It's in the book of Galatians. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is how we know that we're loving. If we are to fulfill the mission that we have been given by God to do all things for His glory, we say loving, living, and leading for God's glory. And if we are to find ourselves growing in a greater love for God and a greater love for each other in this season, then we will need to fix our eyes on Jesus. He will need to do the work within us The power of God, friends, is made perfect in our weakness. If we believe that, then our weakness becomes our greatest strength, our greatest asset. And so I ask us the question today, perhaps many questions, church, what role will we play in unity and in the unity of our body as we climb together out of the fog of COVID-19? What role will we play in embracing and addressing the problem of systematic racism in our country? How might Jesus use us to help promote unity and understanding? How might we show empathy to our brothers and sisters who are hurting? Will our motivation of love be growing stronger than our motivation to be justified or to be right? Will we desperately grasp and cling to that which we cannot hold on to here on earth? Or will we open up our hands and give up control so that we might gain Christ together? And I've said church already and I'll say it again. Now is the time to put a stake in the ground right here today. Next week we look forward to a broader reopening We're inviting you to come back to our building, but we know the reality of the culture and the world we live in today that there will be many of you who are unable to come back. You live at places where you are unable to travel because of the realities of COVID-19. Perhaps you're caring for loved ones who are at risk. You may be a primary caregiver for someone who is highly at risk. You may live with a person who is highly at risk. Many of our lives have been affected by this virus, people whom we know and have loved, have been affected and have gotten this virus and it has caused a real pain and trauma for many of us. Friends, we will all come back at our own time in our own way to this building. And what we want you to know is through the entirety of this season, we will be loving you and caring for you wherever Jesus has you. And we want you to know that We want you to be confident in that. A year from now, when we look back on this time and reflect on the lessons that Jesus has been teaching us in this season, what will be our greatest takeaways? What will be the new landscapes for ministry that Jesus has painted for His church to enjoy? What new patterns will have been established in our lives? What will look differently than it had before COVID-19? And how will we be rejoicing in it? And finally, what unifying part did each of us play in the shaping, in the forming, in the embracing, and the advancement of the never-changing gospel message in this tumultuous and ever-changing world? Let's pray. Father, we know that you desire for Jesus' church to dwell in unity and to be defined by love. We have complicated this. We confess that today. And we repent of our complication of these things, Lord. We repent of any man-made structures that we have built that complicate the individual mandate that each of us have to love one another. And Father, we acknowledge that for every single person you have placed a myriad of relationships in our lives. And we confess today that we have not loved all of those relationships well. And Lord, we need your help we need your help to be better fathers and mothers. We need your help to be better children. We need your help to be better neighbors, to love the people in our communities better. We need your help to love the people of our congregation better. Lord, we complicate this. We, we try to do so much to make ourselves look so good. I am one of the biggest violators. But friends, all we need to do, church, all we need to do as we come before our Lord today is consider the people that He has placed in our lives, that you, Father, have placed in our lives. People that may just need a phone call, may just need a a walk in the park, a Zoom meeting, whatever it may be, an email, a letter, a card, a word of encouragement. Father, our prayer today is that you would help us walk out of this season in unity and in love, that you would draw us together, that you would help us live the example of your Son, Jesus. So thankful for what he's demonstrated and displayed in this book of John. Motivate us, Lord, to be a people of love, children of love with the nature of love growing in love and help us to glorify you as we love, live, and lead for your glory. in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. We'll see you next week.